History this week, August 11th, 1973. I'm Sally Helm. The party invitations went out on index cards. Back to school jam, 1520 Sedgwick Avenue, rec room. Admission, 25 cents for ladies and 50 cents for fellas. Penciled in across the top in block letters, it says, a DJ Cool Herc party. Cool Herc's real name is Clive Campbell, and he's throwing the party with his little sister, Cindy. He's only 18 at the time. His family had moved to the Bronx from Kingston, Jamaica a few years earlier. This will be the first party that he DJs in New York. Campbell has been working on his technique in his bedroom. He uses a mixer and two turntables. He soaks the labels off his records so people can't see what he's playing and steal his secrets. And he's been focusing on a part of the song known as the break. It's the instrumental section with percussion, bass, a driving beat. Herc and other DJs know that the break is when the dance floor fills up, when the energy is best. So they want to make that part go on longer, as long as possible. On that night in August, Campbell and his sister set up in the rec room of their apartment building. Mom serves snacks. At around 9 p.m., people start to show up. Herc's friend Coke LaRock is emceeing. People are breakdancing. And over the course of the night, the energy builds. There are a couple hundred people there. And at some point, there's this moment that will become legendary. It's this part. DJ Cool Herc loops the breakbeat. He extends it using those two turntables and two identical records. When the break ends on one record, he picks it up from the beginning on the other, so it doesn't have to end. People stay in the rec room until late. They dance, have a good time, and then they leave. Not knowing yet that they have just witnessed a world historical event. I'm sure a fair amount of people didn't place any significance to the party. It's really with this kind of mythology that develops afterwards that we begin to try to put the pieces together and find this kind of singular moment that we can claim as a beginning. The pieces had been coming together for years, but this party would go on to become legendary as the birthplace of hip-hop. Today, how did this extended break at a back-to-school party grow into a musical genre that is now worth billions of dollars? And how did hip-hop become one of the most influential cultural movements of the 20th century? For History When You Want It, sign up for an extended 30-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 documentaries and series from the History Channel, commercial-free on your favorite device. Plus, new videos are added to History Vault every week. Sign up now and explore the greatest stories in history, from ancient civilizations to American history, modern warfare, and more. To start your extended 30-day free trial, 
Visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. We learned about the birth of hip-hop from Professor Mark Anthony Neal. I'm born in the Bronx, so when hip-hop grew up, I grew up, you know, with it. And how did you sort of get into studying hip-hop? I began looking at hip-hop, you know, at my PhDs in American Studies. I, I studied the broad cultural history of Black music. Today, he teaches at Duke University, including a class on the history of hip-hop. He says hip-hop has five basic elements. The first one would be b-boying and b-girling, or, or what the mainstream would call breakdancing. Turntablism, as they might th- describe it today, but basically DJing, someone who played records, who create a soundscape that would keep people on the dance floor. And for every DJ, you had to have a hype man. And the MC, the master of ceremony, whose job was basically to get folks hyped up to be on the dance floor as the rapper is now. And then, of course, there was the graffiti art piece. You know, this kind of artwork that seemed to be in conversation with the music and the breakdancing. And then lastly, and this is something that really developed years later, the idea of of a fifth part of this being what we call consciousness, right? That hip-hop has been invested in creating knowledge, not only about itself, but about the world. So these early elements, breakdancing, DJing, emceeing, graffiti, and consciousness, they come together in a specific place and time. The Bronx, beginning in the 1960s. One of the reasons why the Bronx becomes so significant in hip-hop more broadly is that this was a place where, you know, Black migrants from the South, immigrants from particularly the Afro-Caribbean, settled in New York. Before the 1940s, the Bronx had been a mostly white borough with a large Jewish population. But during and after World War II, a lot of Black Americans left the South to move to northern cities. The Southern sharecropping economy was dying, and the more industrialized North promised jobs and hopefully upward mobility and more inclusive communities. In New York, Harlem had long been a center of Black culture, but it was getting more and more expensive. That pushed Black middle-class New Yorkers north into the Bronx, where they could afford more space. And that, in turn, drove white residents to leave. It's impossible to talk about this world without talking about the phenomenon of white flight. I often joke with folks that if you watch a television show like I Love Lucy, that we don't think about as being particularly politically important (laughs) in terms of what's happening in the world. Uh, But when the Ricardos leave New York City and 68th Street, you know, to move to Connecticut, it mirrored the kind of white flight of the upper white middle class that was occurring in New York City at the time. So throughout the late 40s and the 50s, demographics in the Bronx shift. And then in 1965, the country passes a new Immigration Act. This ends up making it easier for Puerto Rican and Caribbean immigrants to come to the U.S. And a lot of them end up settling in the Bronx. And so that was what most of these neighborhoods in the Bronx look like. Black and Latino, recent migrants, recent immigrants, you know, all of them for the first time having, you know, access to the big city. And so, you know, for me, as I longingly look back at it, you know, it it was a wonderful opportunity in terms of mixed racial and mixed ethnicities. 
And so what happens, you know, in the mid-1960s is that you get this interesting moment where all of these different figures are coming together, different languages, different food styles, different kinds of music. And all these kids start sharing their music with each other. You have Puerto Rican kids who have access to certain kind of musical cultures. You have Afro-Caribbeans trying to replicate the sound systems that they grew up with in, in Jamaica where these DJs and musicians would, you know, travel along the countryside with these huge speakers to give parties with the music and the breakdancing. MCing, another main element of hip-hop, can be traced to the tradition of the dozens, which came out of Black communities. The dozens is where Black kids would, would come up with elaborate oral stories um, in which they would talk about an opponent the way it's most easily reduced to is your mama jokes. Except they were always so much more than your mama jokes, right? And so it's this lyrical and oral dexterity that young, particularly black males are developing throughout the early 20th century that segues really seamlessly into, you know, what we think about as the early boast raps. I think ultimately the, the music itself the beat, the rhythm of hip-hop becomes a shared language of these communities. Meanwhile, a final element of early hip-hop culture is evolving below ground. Graffiti art was interesting because it tended to be the most multiracial aspects of these early elements in that you often had working-class poor white kids who were also engaged, most famously in New York City subways, that becomes the outlaw aspect of it. So the foundations of hip-hop are being laid by these kids in the Bronx. But at the same time, there are forces working to tear their diverse communities down. One man in particular has a huge hand in changing the face of the Bronx. Robert Moses. He's the head of the New York City Parks Department and the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority. But... Neil says that the scope of Moses' power is hard to pin down. Robert Moses was, uh, and it's hard to describe his official role, um, but he essentially was the czar in New York City for land works. During the 50s and 60s, Moses spearheads the construction of a highway called the Cross Bronx Expressway. So as someone who's probably literally spent in my life 100 hours in traffic, on the Cross Bronx Expressway. Um, the Cross Bronx Expressway is not necessarily someplace you would use to get around the Bronx. It's something that you use to get through the Bronx. The highway was a route to the white suburbs, and it was built right through neighborhoods in the Bronx. What the Cross Bronx Expressway does, it, it literally destroys established communities in the Bronx. Jewish communities, Italian communities, Black and Latino communities. You're talking about literal displacement. You know, folks physically having to move, you know, to other places in the borough. A lot of folks end up being pushed out of these neighborhoods, get pushed into the projects. So throughout the 50s and 60s, many Black and Latinx New Yorkers get forced out of their homes into public housing projects. Meanwhile, white New Yorkers are taking the Cross Bronx Expressway from the suburbs into Manhattan and driving over the literal rubble of middle and working class neighborhoods in the Bronx. There's also a larger economic crisis that happens in New York in the 70s. 
And it hits the Bronx particularly hard. Demographic shifts, white flight, they've driven the real estate market way down. And some of the landlords were able to figure out there was a glitch in insurance policy at the time that basically they could recover their investment in these buildings by having the buildings burned down. And so we start to see these incredible fires that take place, epidemic of fires in New York City. These fires were made most famous because of the 1977 World Series. The Yankees are playing the Dodgers. There was a fire a few blocks away from Yankee Stadium. And during the broadcast, Howard Cosell nonchalantly announces the Bronx is burning. Neil told us that this economic decline in the Bronx also ends up shaping hip-hop. What happens, you know, in New York City when New York City cuts arts programs and the kind of musical outlets that these kids would have had to be able to make and create music to be in bands, you know, in high school gets translated into this sound that's called hip-hop. By the early 1970s, things are coming together. DJs are throwing these huge parties using Caribbean-influenced sound systems. The place where a lot of these parties would occur would be the large courtyards in the middle of some of these housing projects. They would literally find an open space by the playground with the monkey bars and the concrete whales and all those kinds of things, where they would figure out a way to be able to siphon electricity from the streetlights or literally run, you know, 15 extension cords from the park to someone's apartment that might be on the second floor. And they would have open-air parties, you know, in these courtyards in the projects. They're playing Latin, funk, soul, Jamaican dub. Kids are emceeing, breakdancing. And graffiti is becoming this visual expression of the culture. Plus, it's free guerrilla marketing for DJs and MCs. But there's one part of the equation that's still getting figured out. Before there was a technology that allowed them to seamlessly mix records, you know, they would have two record-playing setups, right? And we're really, at this time, talking about record players and not turntables. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'd be a, someone set up on one side of the dance hall, someone set up on the other side of the dance floor, and when one record is ending, you know, they flash a flashlight <laughs> to the other side so the other side can start the next record um, because they realized there was something about, you know, that kind of sustained groove to folks like Cool Herc, you know, looking for points and songs that really got the dancers amped up, you know, what he would call the get down part, um, which we think about now in terms of breakbeats. You know, that portion of a song that had that one or two minute break, which got everybody amped up and, and all of the DJs are trying to figure out a way to make that breakbeat a continuous loop. Right, and that's when you start to see the early um, innovations in terms of DJing. And this leads to that famous party on August 11th, 1973. And so, you know, whatever happened that night, you know, history remembers it as significant because whatever hip-hop was seems to concretize itself in this moment at this time. And, you know, the best measure of what happened that night is what Clive Campbell did for the next two or three years. Travel around the Bronx in New York City and and give these parties 
After that night in August at the back-to-school party, this new musical style grows and spreads. And pretty soon, it takes on a life that goes way beyond the borough where it was born. Neil was there when this breakbeat innovation started to spread around the Bronx. When I plug into all of this, you know, I'm 12 years old, it's 1978. All of my friends are running around talking about these breakbeats. And my boombox had a pause button. And we all start making pause button tapes where we play the breakbeat, come to the end of the break and we pause it. Right. And as we try to continuously loop these beats, right? And you hope that you had a good enough boombox that you didn't actually hear the, the click and the pause. Because what we were then doing now is making cassettes of these continuous beats and all of us are being, you know, our first rappers, you know, outside our building, because we all have this hope that one day we could go into the park and be there with Grandmaster Flash or Grand Wizard Theodore or some of those folks. DJ Grand Wizard Theodore starts using the record scratch in 1975. It helps cover the pause in those break loops. So instead of something like this, the breaks start sounding more like this. Then something big happens. Grandmaster Kaz, a popular MC in the Bronx, he gives a friend in New Jersey a book of lyrics that he'd written. That friend, Big Bang Hank, is a member of the Sugar Hill Gang, which was put together by an R&B singer named Sylvia Robinson. She'd go on to be called the mother of hip-hop because she produces the very first hip-hop album, Rapper's Delight. It's basically Grandmaster Kaz's lyrics <laughs> that become the core of Rapper's Delight. I can still remember conversations when we all first heard Rapper's Delight on the radio in the fall of 1979. We're all going, you know, rap is on the radio, right? Because mm-hmm. that was something that we never thought would happen. Rapper's Delight blows up. Grandmaster Kaz, by the way, doesn't share in its success. But people way beyond the Bronx are listening to his lyrics and to this new musical style. Then in 1980... Blondie appropriates rap on her hit song, Rapture. In 1982, a bunch of popular MCs and DJs go on the New York City rap tour in Europe, bringing hip-hop overseas. In 1983, a man named Charlie Sutter organizes the first corporate-sponsored hip-hop concert at Radio City Music Hall. Ice-T brings hip-hop to the West Coast. salt and Peppa, MC Light, Queen Latifah become some of the most prominent women to join the hip-hop scene. Then Run DMC teams up with Aerosmith and releases a new cover of Walk This Way in 1986. That album is the first hip-hop album to go platinum. What was so important about that collaboration with Aerosmith is it brought the white rock kids to hip-hop. And guess what? Hip-hop is on MTV. And of course, the early days of MTV can be best described as a form of cultural apartheid. You know. If you weren't Michael Jackson, you didn't see Black folks on MTV. By two years later, you know, you have MTV debuting a weekly show called Yo! MTV Raps. And six months after that, there's a daily show. 
So hip-hop is reaching mainstream white audiences. And at the same time, graffiti is moving into highbrow visual art circles. Basquiat, who came up as a graffiti artist, is getting shown in Soho galleries. He's collaborating with Andy Warhol. Graffiti is a really interesting way to think about the dual tensions in hip-hop at the moment. So you're having, you know, graffiti artists who were becoming art famous, right, for their art being downtown. At the same time, their art is being politicized and criminalized, right, in New York City because of its presence on New York City subways. In 1989, the Grammys add a rap category. And by the 90s, hip-hop music is fully entrenched in the mainstream. And what we increasingly see is that the hip-hop that the white kids in the suburbs want was not the watered-down stuff. (laughs) They wanted the stuff that they viewed as authentic, you know, which is why you can't talk about gangster rap in the 1990s without talking about how much of the commercial enterprise was about the buying of gangster rap records by white kids. Alongside this, you start to hear objections that hip-hop glorifies violence. Here's how Neil responds to that. So there are two responses. One, America is violent. And more importantly, America has been violent to Black people. I think hip-hop, in its purest form, has tried to be reflective of the world that's going on. And there's a way to be able to do that and create great art at the same time. You know, I think very often how we think about violence in hip-hop is that that's just one part of it. And it's very often the part that people feel the need to talk about. Right? We don't talk about hip-hop, we talk about fatherhood, you know, for instance. Or the response to anti-Black violence and police brutality. Um, And a lot of it has to do with what is the kind of hip-hop that catches the attention of corporations trying to sell it. And so very often the most popular hip-hop is not reflective of the broad interests that we hear in hip-hop. As hip-hop gets more and more commercial, it also penetrates into more and more areas of culture. To start thinking about creating films, to start thinking about clothing lines, they correctly understood the kids who were listening to this music at some point would want to dress like their favorite rappers. You know, they would want to smell like their favorite rappers. They would want to drink the same beer (laughs) or high-end champagne, right? Neil says this also results in a deeper cultural change. He feels like we can't talk about the election of Barack Obama, for example, without talking about hip-hop. And by that, I don't mean that there were a bunch of rap artists, you know, making records, selling books to vote for Obama. But... Many of the young whites, right, who felt comfortable voting for Barack Obama, which means they were comfortable voting for a black man, their comfortability occurs because they had been listening to black hip-hop artists for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And so these black men and black women were not taboo to them in the same way that these black folks might have been taboo to their parents or their grandparents you know, a generation or two earlier. So this art form grows from that back-to-school party in a rec room into an incredibly influential cultural movement, not to mention an economic juggernaut. 
According to Forbes, in 2019, the wealthiest 20 hip-hop artists collectively made about $860 million. Just shy of a billion in a single year. But Neil says that's not why hip-hop is important. Not really. That goes back to a kid. Or really, a whole group of kids. Clive Campbell was 18 years old when he gave that party. And the idea that a group of black and brown teenagers just trying to figure out their place in the world could create something that would have such an incredible cultural, political, and economic impact a generation or two later, for me, that's the story. It's the story to tell every little black and brown kid who feels as though they're locked out, who has an idea, who sees something in the world that doesn't exist and and figures out a way to begin to pursue that, you know, that's for me is is the lesson of hip hop. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This episode was produced by McKamey Lynn. Music for this episode was provided by DJ Silva Surfa, D Nasty the Master, White Bones, and Epidemic Sound. Special thanks to them. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our editor and sound designer is Brian Flood. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week.